Well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Vinzant. I work with our student ministry here at the Spring Branch campus. I'm excited to share with you as we continue on through the book of Matthew, as we near the end through our journey in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Matthew chapter 7. Well, I've noticed this pattern when it comes to how we talk about and evaluate Christian teaching. And this might be a millennial thing, I'm not totally sure, but when it comes to sermons or books or something we see online, I found this link between how we judge its quality, whether good or bad, with some level of pain or discomfort that it brings us. For example, let's say that I'm over in the student's area on a Sunday morning and I missed the message and I asked someone, hey, how was it? And they go, oh, it was fire. Totally wrecked me. If you don't know, those are positive reviews. <laughs> They're saying, hey, this message, it convicted me. It confronted me or it exposed something in me. And because it hurt, I know that it's true and good. I have the same criteria when it comes to mouthwash. Uh, we came home recently with the pain-free, alcohol-free version. I used it once, never again. I didn't feel anything. So I'm convinced that it doesn't do anything. And you know, we want to be careful that we're not simply chasing after feeling. And yet, the Bible affirms this good hurt we see Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, I'm glad you experienced godly sorrow because it led to repentance. Similarly, we see Peter in the book of Acts filled with the Holy Spirit. He's standing up, he's preaching to a crowd, and at first they write him off. They're like, this guy's drunk. But by the end, it says they're cut to the heart. They say, brother, what do we do? And then in John 15, a passage we're gonna come back to later, uh, Jesus says that our fruitfulness as Christians is dependent on God's interacting with us as a gardener. And here's the thing, God does not massage fruit out of us. He prunes. And that pruning isn't pleasant, but it's a good hurt. So I think we ought to welcome it. But as we head into our passage this morning, my concern is that you're gonna walk out of here in a little bit or you're gonna turn off the live stream if you're at home and the primary thing you're gonna be feeling is agitated. This message will be less fire and more rock in your shoe. There's a few reasons I think that might be the case. The first is that for the original audience, they're listening to Jesus. I imagine many of them would have left agitated. We began looking last week at this final section as Jesus closes out this amazing sermon. And what he does is he brings them to a crossroads. He says, hey, you can choose to either stay on the wide, comfortable path that leads to death, or you can choose the narrow, difficult path that leads to life. And they're going to have to do something with that. And it says that they leave and they're amazed by his authority the question is, are they going to submit to that authority? The other reason I think you may be agitated today is because I have been agitated the past few weeks as I've studied and prepared. 
And here's what agitates me. I hate it when someone's trying to explain something to me or show me something. And for whatever reason, I'm just not getting it. But where it really crosses the line and gets under my skin, when they say, Ryan, how are you not seeing this? It's obvious. So what you're telling me is that the reason I'm not understanding is not because it's complicated or unclear, but the reason is me. There's some deficiency in me that keeps me from seeing what's so clear to everyone else. That's agitating. And in this passage, Jesus is gonna give us a really straightforward command. He's gonna say, I want you to be mindful of, the translation reads, be on guard against a certain type of person. He tells us what they're gonna be like. He tells us how we're gonna recognize them. And he says that it's going to be clear. He says it will be obvious. But I look around at our world today and it doesn't seem obvious. So what do we make of that? What deficiency in me or in us does that point to? When what Jesus says will be obvious isn't obvious What does that tell us about us? That's where we're heading this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's read Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Matthew writes, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good. Lord, we believe in your spirit. God, would you speak to us today? Would you give me boldness to proclaim your word? Would you give me gentleness that is the hallmark of wisdom from above? In the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. Well, as I already said, Jesus gives us our first application point in the opening line. He calls us to be on guard, to defend against false prophets, those who would come to us claiming to speak God's truth. He says, externally, they're gonna look like they belong. They're gonna look like they should be among us. Uh, But internally, he says, they are ravenous wolves, meaning their agenda is their appetite. Their reason for being among God's people is to consume, to take and to satisfy their hunger for wealth, power, ego, their desires, and so on. And right from the start, I think we run into a challenge with this topic and that I think it's tempting for us to self-exempt. We can see this as a 
out there problem, not an in here problem. After all, we go to a good church, we teach the Bible, surely someone must be vetting the people who get up here or lead community groups, right? Meanwhile, when it comes to false teachers, I think we have this idea in our heads that we immediately go to. Televangelist on screen, preaching some Looney Tunes theology, prosperity gospel in order to finance their private jets. We're not that. So we're good. First off, I just wanna say, if you can recognize a wolf from a distance, then you don't need a warning from Jesus. I don't think that's who he's concerned about for us. And then if we pull back and look at Jesus's words later on in Matthew, along with every other New Testament writer who hits on this topic, it makes me think that we're more vulnerable here than we realize. Matthew 24, starting in verse 11, Jesus talking about the future says, many false prophets will appear, deceive many people. Second Peter 2, there were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their ways and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. Second Timothy 4, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. The reality told to us by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament is not some distant out there threat, but it's closer than we realize. And it's drawing nearer all the time. So it's not a matter of if false teachers come, but when. And the question we have to ask ourselves is will we be able to recognize them? Last week, we looked at the verses just preceding this. And in that, Jesus talks about uh, the gate, the narrow gate that the sheep will enter through. And Icky pointed out how in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, I am the gate. And that passage is really important because Jesus also gives us some insight about false teachers. He tells us how they get in. John 10, one and two, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Notice the distinction. When it comes to the community of God's people, there are shepherds who enter through the truth of Jesus Christ as imitators of the good shepherd. And then there are others who bypass the truth of Jesus and enter through some other way. And as we start, if we want to recognize false teachers, I want to talk about these entry points for a moment, these gaps that false teachers will take advantage of. The first is a head gap. It's a gap between what we know and what we don't know. Now, when it comes to God's word, God's revealed truth, we believe that it is sufficient, that God has given us everything we need to know in order to fulfill his purposes. We also believe that God's word has clarity, meaning that we can understand it. Now, that doesn't always mean that it's easy to understand. If you've ever been reading the Bible and just had no clue what it's talking about or been confused, then you're in really good company. The apostle Peter, as he's writing in one of his letters, uh, he actually mentions Paul's letters, 
which is interesting to see one biblical author comment on another biblical author. And I love what he says. Second Peter 3, he writes, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Amen? But then look what he says. Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, forewarned, be on your guard so that you not, may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says that it's those things that are difficult to understand that false teachers will distort, or twist. And there's intention here. That word literally means to put on a stretching machine in order to pop out of socket. And so for us, what that means is the wider our gaps are between what we know to be true and what we don't know, the more vulnerable we are to it being twisted. And what I think false teachers really want ultimately is that we would judge and evaluate scripture through the lens of their teaching, their theology. Whereas a true shepherd invites you to evaluate their teaching through the lens of scripture. This is what we see the Bereans do to Paul in Acts 17. It says that Paul comes to them preaching the gospel and it's a new message. They had never heard it before. So it says they examine scripture each day to determine if what he said was true. This is a great model for us. Later on this morning, we're gonna go through quite a few passages. And I encourage you, I challenge you, go home, write down the reference, read it, look at the context, look at the cross-references. Don't just take my word for it. It's too important for that. And then make a habit as you listen saying, hey, does, does what I'm hearing, does it fit with God's word or has it been popped out of socket in order to fit some theological agenda? The second gap is one I think is even more concerning. It's a heart gap. And it's the gap between what we know to be true and what we want to be true. This is the gap that Paul was warning Timothy about there in 2 Timothy that we read saying that people will multiply teachers for themselves to tell them what their itching ears long to hear. A few weeks ago, we took our high school students on a camping trip and it was a ton of fun. We had a blast. Uh, it went super smoothly, despite the fact that not a single one of them knew how to put their tent together before they got there, but it was great. The only issue we ran into after we got back, uh, we got back Saturday and on Sunday afternoon, I'm here at church and I noticed I have this like red spot in my arm. And it's a little itchy, but nothing too bad. Till four in the morning the next day, I wake up, both my arms are on fire. So is my chest. I go into the bathroom and I have like bright red spots all up and down. And I remembered that I'd been gathering firewood Friday night and I'd been wrestling around in some brush. And if you've never had poison ivy before, I can't tell you enough how absolutely miserable it is. And if you had had poison ivy, then you know that you'll do just about anything to alleviate that itch. And if you had told me that swallowing a pint of dirt would make it better, I would have been in the backyard with a shovel. That's how bad it is. So it's how we respond 
when we itch. And Paul tells Timothy that there's gonna come a time when people don't wanna hear the truth. They want to satisfy an itch, to hear what they want to hear. And he's talking about Christians. He's talking about us. And in that context, false teachers multiply because they're more than willing to oblige. And that service comes with a price tag. We see this all the time in our world today. Just about any topic. If you want one thing to be true, the Bible says something different. There's someone out there with a book deal and five reasons why that passage doesn't actually say what you thought it said. It's a lucrative business. It's not new. It's the oldest play in the book. When Satan comes and tempts Eve in the garden, it's not that he had the most compelling argument. It's that he capitalized on their desires. Did God really say? That's not what he meant. Here's the truth. And that little push is all it took to move them from what they knew to be true to doing what they wanted. One last gap I wanna to touch on. It's the gap we see in the second half of our passage. Let me read it again, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you, depart from me you lawbreakers. A few things I want to highlight. First, notice that they are factually correct in what they say. They know their lines, Lord, Lord. And then they jump into their resume, all their spiritual accomplishments. Look at all the things we did in your name. Tragically, Jesus says, I didn't know you. There's a gap that you were unaware of. It's the gap between the Jesus you were acting on behalf of and knowing the Jesus who is. Jesus says, I didn't know you because they didn't know him. Rather than doing God's will, the best they could do was slap Jesus's name on their agenda. And Jesus doesn't mention their teachers. So that moment, as they stand before the throne, they are responsible. But I would be willing to go so far to say that behind many false Christians is a false teacher who enabled and sheared them on. Said, you're doing great. Look at your works. Look at your miracles. You know the right things to say. You're good. Church, the stakes are too high to be sloppy about our gaps. So what do we do? Maybe for some of us, we need to be honest about our gaps and who we've let through them. Now, I'm not just talking about spiritual leaders, but any voice that we've given a position of influence to in our lives. Maybe it starts by asking some difficult questions. How did this person gain my trust? Did they take advantage of what I didn't know and my desire for an answer? 
Did they repeat my thoughts back to me or tell me what I wanted to hear? Did they affirm that I was one of the good guys, that I was on the right team? Those are hard, hard questions. And we can convince ourselves with these voices that we are the consumers. But make no mistake, when it comes to wolves, Jesus says that we will be consumed. And then we need spiritual leaders who are willing to lovingly and gently confront our gaps. When it comes to our heads, it means not only teaching us all that God's word says, but modeling how to interact with scripture for ourselves. For our hearts, we need teachers who can look at our lives and look at God's word and say, hey, something's not adding up. It might ruffle some feathers. It might mean a few emails, but I can't settle to skirt around this or tell you what you want to hear. We need shepherds who can see through our impressive resumes, who can discern, do these people know Jesus or do they just know the right words to say? Do they live surrendered to his will or do they use Jesus' name as a smokescreen to do the things that they already were going to do? False teachers will take advantage of our gaps. The question is, how wide have they gotten? Well, earlier this year, during the great DIY revolution of early 2020, my wife Kayla and I looked around our house and we noticed a few projects that we wanted to knock out while we had some time on our hands. And one of the things that I was particularly excited about was building a garden in our backyard. You might not know this, but I have a rich heritage of farming in my DNA. And I was excited thinking about all the things that we were gonna grow and this amazing harvest. So we spent a weekend We went to Home Depot, we got wood, we put together the siding, we broke up the soil, poured in new dirt, and we planted tomatoes, bell pepper, jalapenos, serrano, because if you're gonna grow anything in Texas, it might as well be salsa. (laughs) But it turns out my interest in gardening lasted about one day. Long enough to build a garden, but a few months shy of actually producing anything. Here's a picture of my garden from this last week. You'll notice the excellent craftsmanship, not pictured on my ancestors who are weeping, (laughs) asking how did it come to this? But tragically, I think this picture represents so many of us in the church today. See, we wanna have a garden. We want to be Christians But when it comes to bearing fruit, we have stopped short and settled for far less. And here's why that matters. Jesus says that bearing fruit is a defining feature of knowing him. Good trees produce good fruit. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. But Jesus, I put together the walls I broke up the dirt. I poured in new soil. I planted seeds. What does that remind you of? Jesus looks at a fruitless garden. Says, I didn't know you. Because if I knew you, there would be fruit. I think this is why false teachers aren't obvious. Jesus says it will be clear. 
He says it twice. You will recognize them by their fruit. Good trees, good fruit. Bad trees, bad fruit. But if we haven't had fruit cultivated in us, then we won't know what to look for. And you know who is more than okay with that? False teachers, because it would expose them. That's our second big idea today. In order to recognize fruit, we must have fruit cultivated in us. So what do we do? We just need to work harder, have more discipline. No. John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing. Fruit is not something we can produce on our own. So what do we do? I wish I could give you a clean, do these three things and send you on your way. But I think the problem is deeper than that. I think for some of us, we need a shift at the core of how we understand what it means to follow Jesus John 12, 23 through 26. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Don't miss this. The invitation to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. But through that surrender, there's multiplication, there's community, and there's fruitfulness. We don't like to talk about this part. We skip over it. You may have been taught a version of the gospel that went something like this. I have sinned. Sin has a punishment. Jesus took the punishment. And so far, so good, right? That's substitutionary atonement. We're fans. The problem is when we add a fourth proposition. I have sinned, sin has a punishment, Jesus took the punishment, therefore I don't have to die. And depending on what we mean by that, it can very easily stop being the gospel. And that's a really risky thing to say in a sermon about false teaching. So I wanna be clear. Do I believe Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord? Yes, Do I also believe everything that comes before that in Romans 6? Yes, Paul writes, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him, 
and a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who dies has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Church, we can no longer settle for a version of Christianity where Jesus does all the dying so that we can do all the living. We gotta stop hiding this in the fine print because our stubborn refusal to die will kill us. And if we don't see fruit, this is why. So maybe here's your application. For some of us today, Maybe it's time to put your faith in Jesus, not faith in being factually correct or knowing the right words to say or faith in your actions done in his name, but faith in him, a surrender that joins him in his death and trusts that the same spirit who raised him from the dead will breathe life into your mortal bodies and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. For others of us, maybe we have surrendered, gave our lives to him. But since then, that cross that Jesus calls us to take up daily, it's become a burden. And we've slowly let self back into the driver's seat. Here's the thing, our life as Christ followers is a journey of being made more like him. Christ who emptied himself, who only did what he saw the father doing and said, not my will, but your will be done. And we have a journey ahead of us that requires constant and continual surrender. As God's spirit, calls attention to different areas of our life, we have the opportunity to respond. I believe the posture God calls us to is one of open hands, represents an open heart that prays along with David in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So to wrap up this morning, if fruit comes from knowing Jesus, being filled by his spirit as we empty ourselves in death, and that's that's what we ought to look for in our leaders. The apostle Paul, looking at his ministry as he travels from town to town, starting churches and teaching, uh, he's constantly being followed up by false teachers who are trying to undermine his work, undercut his character. And so he's in this position where he has to write against them to defend himself and his ministry. He does this constantly. There are 
many passages, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 11, and 12, Galatians 4, Ephesians 3, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 3, to name a few. And you know what Paul always points to as the chief evidence? It's his surrender. His putting to death of self to Christ on their behalf. And his suffering, he's willing to endure for the gospel. Wasn't his preaching? He says his sermons are intentionally weak so that their faith wouldn't rest in human reasoning. Because Paul knew the gospel that he could talk you into is the same gospel that someone else can talk you out of. The question we have to ask is why, why does Paul point to this? Why does he point to his surrender? I think it's because it's the one thing a wolf can't imitate. It's the opposite. It's the part of their sheep costume that didn't come included. A wolf whose appetite is their agenda will consume God's people. But a good shepherd will imitate the good shepherd who surrendered his rights, gave everything, and laid down his life. I'm telling you, there are a lot of leaders out there with talent and good ideas. There are a lot of leaders out there who can communicate, keep your attention, maybe even make you feel something. There are a lot of leaders out there who can grow churches and make them bigger. You know who loves gathering a bunch of sheep in one place? A wolf. What we need are leaders who are surrendered to Christ for us and a church that is surrendered and willing to be led and willing to know their leaders deeply. And when we do that, I believe we can. Guess what will happen when wolves come? We'll be on guard because it will be obvious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's agitating. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your love for us that pursues us when we wandered off. Lord, we confess that we have let self guide us for far too long. So Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do and bring us to surrender, to give our lives to you. God, we thank you for this church. We know that you have a heart for the people here, the leaders you have called to shepherd. Lord, those who are yet to come and those who have left, and we thank you that your faithfulness runs through it all. 
God, would you cultivate fruit in us? Would it be obvious so that false shepherds may be obvious? We love you. Well, I wanna invite our prayer folks to come forward. They're gonna be standing right over here by this garage door. As we enter into a time of prayer, you're gonna be able to step outside and pray with them, distanced from each other. That's something we love doing and we haven't done it for a while. We wanted to bring it back. So if you need prayer for anything at all, we encourage you to come forward. We know this has been a tough, tough year and that we're entering into for what many people is a especially tough time. So if you want prayer, to come forward. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Amen. We church will stand and sing together.